and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, everyone. This month, we're talking about creative ways different Jewish communities are and should celebrate the high holidays with the specter of COVID-19 making many traditional services too dangerous. And for our second segment, we're talking about our favorite representations of Jewish life on TV. Okay, so uh, the high holidays are coming, not super soon, but they are not getting farther away, certainly. And uh, this is a weird time to be trying to figure out anything for the future, honestly, but especially how you would run a service that usually involves lots of people sitting close together and singing all things that um, are ill-advised and intergenerational groups. <laughs> um, so I'm curious just to hear about like what you know of that's happening in communities that you're aware of and also um, what you all are, are thinking about doing yourselves. Well, just a threshold question. So, cause I was, neither of you have been back to shul, right? Neither of your shuls is open. Correct. Correct. Okay. I mean, my shul is doing online services on Shabbat. Oh yeah. But no, that I don't, I do not attend them and the building itself is closed. Okay. Because my shul is, uh, partially reopened, um, and that's true, I think, of a lot of Orthodox schools in the New York area as well as in Toronto. So this isn't like a Canada is doing fine thing. Um, I don't know about other parts of the United States, but I have not personally gone back in part because the shul reopening is not um, small child friendly. Um, but I assume that my shul will do some version of what it is currently doing. It is permitted to reopen at... 30% of capacity. Um, so right now, and this is the uninteresting answer to the question, the technical, like, how do we create a minimal version of the shul experience closest facsimile we can. But basically the, the rules here are that, um, houses of worship are allowed to be open at 30% capacity. So the biggest space in our shul building, which is the, um, the sort of banquet hall has been set up with Pairs of folding chairs spaced six feet apart. You can pre-register for services, um, at which point you will get a health screening questionnaire. Um, and if you pass the screening, then you sign a waiver and then you can attend services. And then there's a guide path of flow of how people may enter and exit the building. Uh, services go expeditiously, no singing, um, no socializing until you're outside, um, and it was originally, uh, you can bring children if they're 12 and up, that's been lowered to nine and up as long as they can sit still. Um, and there is like a bathroom stall open for emergencies, but you're encouraged to try to not need it. Um, and cleaning in between services. And so that kind of like, if what you really value in your shul experience is the technical achievement of communal prayer then you can probably get it in this setting, but not much else. But actually, even that is only available to a select number of people, right? Yes. Like, I think that what is, like, one of the many complicated and stressful things about this is, like, we're in a weird way having to decide who gets to pray communally. Um, and different communities have to make those determinations. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it. I like, in some ways it makes sense to do first come first serve, but it's also like, well, if you have to register online, then you're really preferencing people who like are comfortable with registering for things online. You know, like there's probably a community of people for whom that's not comfortable. I've heard of other places doing either, if you have multiple clergy, doing multiple services either at the same time or in shifts um, so that, you know, you sort of have a rotation of people coming in and out. 
I worry about the drain of that on the human resources of a synagogue, though, of course, much of services can be led by volunteers. Um, but even that is a lot. The logistics of all of this just sound really exhausting, even just managing the registration and the um, cleaning before and after. I felt like it was important to put out the like maybe what people are doing on high holidays is going to shul as like a basic thing. But I do think it's the least exciting way to explore the topic. And I'm curious how people are thinking beyond the usual framework. It's not that exciting, but I think that it is, there's a lot that's kind of like underneath the surface of that. Like if you are going to set up something that's like, we're going to allow some people to come in person, then you have to figure out what are the criteria by which we make this decision. So that is something that I think that most communities really never anticipated having to do and probably don't have a good infrastructure in place and probably is the kind of thing that could easily cause a lot of strife in a community. Um, then there are gonna be people who might really want to go but don't feel safe going and that is going to like be a whole other kind of group of people. And then there's the issue that like, even if you get there and you go, like, what is the, what does it feel like to be in shul when you can't sing at all? I mean, I don't know because I've never done it. Um, but I think that all of those things actually make for such a dramatically different experience for the people who are there and experience for the people who are like considering going um that it is there like there is a lot about that that I think kind of weighs can weigh very heavily on people I do think that in general the way those limited spots are being allocated well here I feel like that the way that they're deciding who can register at least is entirely driven by ostensible health risk and ability to abide by the guidelines. So there's like a, we assume that young children can't stay still in their seat and not go near or touch anybody for the length of services. We, um, you know, if you are over 65, like you are requested to speak to your doctor before coming, that sort of thing. And, and then the only sort of religious preferencing that I have heard of is if you have a life cycle event, like you are having a baby naming or a bar mitzvah or something, or if you are saying Kaddish, that those things can get you preference in the, um, in the registration process, which makes sense. But like, as I was talking with a friend who, um, just had a baby, she was like, talking about what it was like to essentially not be on the list of potential shul attendees and realizing that like when it comes to communal Jewish observance, she's like not an essential worker, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. you don't make the cut. Does, what, was her husband on the list? I mean, I don't mean the literal, like he, okay. meaning either one of them could theoretically go alone without the other and their children, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, like it wasn't like there's a pre-approved list of which members may register. Um, right. it was just that like structurally, um, people in her situation in life, people in many of our situations in life are just like, we don't, we don't work around the rules for you because we're trying to create a workable framework. Right. I see what you mean though. I've definitely heard of jewels that are like, of a size where they're like, we are only letting 10 or 12 like people in the room and they're all men so that we can have a minion because yes. they only count men and a minion. So that is very much like just telling women like you're not essential workers essentially to the Jewish community, which mm-hmm. is rough. Yeah, I, I have seen that in some orthodox settings and I am very glad not to be part of a show where that's the case, but I, I find it immediately infuriating as you can imagine. Yeah. Well, I think that for me, when thinking about the high holidays, um, I was able to talk to a friend who's a rabbi at a reform congregation in Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, and she was describing the, 
all of the stuff that goes on outside of like the actual Rosh Hashanah or actual Yom Kippur as other opportunities for creating this environment of the high holidays. So, you know, going out and blowing shofar in different locations where small groups of people can gather at a distance to hear it um, or doing various learning opportunities online um, you know, planning a tashlich that a small group of people can come to. And I really appreciate, I think I've been focused so much on the actual services of the high holidays. Um, but it's true, it's true every year that I have a better experience on those particular days if I've done some preparation and some thinking and getting into the spirit of the day. And that's, for me, at least, it was. It, it's important to expand our conversation, in in some ways, around like this whole season, um, because I think that will enhance our experiences on the holidays themselves. Yeah, I have been thinking that like, it's funny because in davening on Rosh Hashanah we say that you can do repentance, prayer and charity or tzedakah are all ways that you can uh, make things better for yourself. And, uh, you know, when you're hearing those words, you are standing in prayer, typically at a synagogue, but like it does include two other things that you can do. And um, I wonder, I think that a good approach is to see if you can kind of shift the focus from maybe the the prayer service to the other things because lots of people I think are going to be davening at home to the extent that they're doing davening at all. Um, but I have to be honest that like, I just, I can't see myself like sitting at home and like doing a whole Yom Kippur service by myself. Like yeah. I just, I don't know how I would actually do that, especially because, like, I also will not have childcare. Um, so it's, like, even more complicated than just, like, am I really going to just sit and read, like, 300 pages of the Mahzor by myself? Um, am I going to be, like, singing? Like, what does that even look like? But it's also, like, there's no—no no one's going to be doing a children's service for my kid unless it's me. Um and if I have a 12-year-old and a 5-year-old, am I, like, creating two different children's services and running them individually? Like, oh, my God, just talking about this makes me want to become a Catholic. Like, <laughs> I actually, I mean, I, I think that I'll have to look out for what I expect to be and I hope will be sort of a proliferation of how to do the high holidays for your kids kind of materials and resources. Like, I think that that is something where Jewish organizations, I kind of expect them to rally for that. Like, I bet there will be a lot of, a, a lot of organizations doing that well. And hopefully there will be things to, well, doing that in volume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. When you said doing that well, I made a face because that seems like really maybe too high of an ask. Maybe, but I, I expect there to be, at least a significant number of resources to draw on there if that's something you want to do. But actually, so um, two potential models came to mind as you were describing, like, am I going to sit here and read 300 pages of this, uh, of this Mahzor by myself? So um, one is the idea of a high holiday bubble, and one is the idea of division of responsibility. So let me, let me sketch out what came to mind. Okay. One is that, um, so people have been using this term bubble in pandemic times to describe like the people that are in your circle of exposure, right. And that if you, um, there have been places where you're, you've been advised, okay, well you could have, let's say five non-family members in your bubble or something like that to think about like how to make your circle manageable and less isolating, but still minimize networks of exposure. And the high holidays are like a significant chunk of time. It's a season. And I could see it being both worthwhile and reasonable 
to sort of get together with a couple of families and say, okay, like our three families, our four families are going to constitute each other's high holiday bubble. Um, and we're going to, you know, not interact with other people for a couple of weeks beforehand. And we're going to like commit to each other for this time so that, you know, we can rotate prayer and childcare and maybe have meals together on Rosh Hashanah or break fast or whatever is important in your high holiday meal thing. And, um, you know, we can have group prayer and something like that. Like I can imagine a model where people who are not going to go to shul collaborate in a circumscribed way. And I could imagine that being kind of nice. And it actually kind of reminds me tomorrow of the way you and a couple of other families do your Simchat Torah camping every year. Like you have a certain like co-observance that isn't a, a, a communal observance. I think that that could be like a model. The other thing that came to mind in terms of vision of responsibility is you were saying, am I going to sit here and read all 300 of these pages by myself? And maybe you could have like not in person, remotely, a division of responsibility where in the same way that the shaliach tzibur, the, the, like, the cantor or prayer leader in a communal service, like bears responsibility for representing everyone throughout the prayers, that I wonder if we could each theoretically enlist five other people to say, we're going to split up these services. We're each going to do our fifth of it really well and represent the rest of you um, in some like non-technical, but spiritually meaningful way. And we're going to collaborate to complete the prayer service together. Mm. Um, it's like a Tehillim list, but for high holiday davening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a totally <laughs> half idea. just came to mind thing. I love any idea that does not require me to read 300 pages of the Mahzor myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I am totally sold. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously when it comes to the prayers themselves, a lot of it comes for me, there are two major divisions of do you use technology on the holidays or not? Because if you do use technology, there are all of these other ways, none of which I think are ideal. Zoom services are not great, Um, but you can feel you can have some experience, but then I think another division is: do you do you feel an obligation and to to say these prayers or have them said on your behalf in some sort of way, or are you willing to say this is just going to be a different? I'm taking on a different obligation. It's not for you know this prayer in a minion, mm-hmm. or or even this prayer not in a minion. Right, 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 or even by myself. You're right. Thank you. Um, I think that for me, it's been really interesting to see how different communities are doing services over Zoom, you know, whether it's the rabbi in her house or the rabbi on the bima by herself in a synagogue. Um, To me, that makes a big, I much prefer seeing a rabbi on the bima, weirdly. I mean, it's not that weird. It just, for me, that's the space. And so that's what I kind of want to see. And I think for high holidays, I all the more so want like that grandeur of the space. Um, And it seems like there's also a division of whether you're doing services over Zoom where people can see one another or over live stream where they can only see what's going on in the shul. Um, I've only done Zoom and I think my experiences on Zoom would lead me actually to prefer live stream because I can get kind of caught up in seeing in like doing the gallery view and seeing what other people are doing, um, which happens to me in Shul too. But like, <laughs> it's even worse when you're looking in their bedrooms. Um, I was at a, a meeting of people talking about different options for the high holidays and somebody was like, I, I want to figure out how we can make sure that people like behave appropriately because they're going to be like at their homes. And like sometimes, you know, now while we're having services or in meetings or something, you know, we'll see people like doing like other things. And it's <laughs> while that was happening, I was like planting my window boxes. <laughs> 
And I was just like, I feel seen and attacked. (laughs) But also I feel like this is the thing is like, we're all trapped in our houses. And I think that for some people, life has slowed down significantly, particularly if you've lost your job. Um, But for other people, like life is like, a thousand times more chaotic than it's ever been because we're dealing with either illness or childcare or both and also trying to keep our jobs. Um, and so that, you know, people are having to do a lot of things at one time and like they aren't at school. <laughs> and also, I mean, it's funny because it's like, it does make this assumption that like when, when everybody's at high holiday davening, like they're all acting appropriately and paying attention, which is not my experience of the high holidays. Um, so yeah, anyways, it was interesting because it was like, yeah, it's very like the thing about not being in the building is like, you're at your house. You could be doing anything, but like, you know, there's some downsides to that, but there's also some upsides to that. And also like, it's not even really about like, is it good or bad? Like it just is like, this is just the situation that we have. And you can't tell people like you have to put on a a tie for the high holidays when you're sitting in your house. Like some people will want to do that. Right. But like, you can't force people to. And what would even be the point of that? I will say I got dressed up for a zoom wedding and felt great. It felt so nice to put on real clothes. So if you're going to be watching your services on the computer, I think you should get dressed up, get in the spirit. One thing that this has made me think about is um, like the value of togetherness independent of Minion. Uh, When I was an undergrad, I had many friends that were in the interfaith dialogue group. I was not myself in the group, but I sort of felt like I was by proxy because like I knew a good 30% of the people in the group. Um, And one fellow member of the Orthodox community who was in the group was talking about a retreat that they had gone on. And she had this sort of epiphany because there were, I don't know, let's say four Orthodox Jews in the group and let's say four-ish religious Muslims in the group. And there was this multi-day retreat and the Jews would all daven every day separately. But the Muslims in that particular group would get together and pray together. She was saying, we all act like there's no value in davening together and having Jewish prayer together if we're not going to fulfill the technical requirement of a minion. And seeing people value praying together, even in the absence of any kind of like threshold quorum situation, was really powerful to her and made her feel like, why couldn't the four of us just like get together and daven and sing and something we were all there doing this thing in our separate corners and it felt sad to her. And I thought that was interesting. And, and whether that's a family thing or whether that's like, you know, the notion that like five friends can manage to get together socially distantly in a backyard and share a thing seems like worth pondering. Um, and probably might would be a better prayer experience than having an as efficient as possible songless shul experience. Right. Yeah. I do feel so sad about prayer experience without song. I just have to underline that. It's just so sad. It's terrible. I also like, I'm really mourning the lack of meals with other people. Like I have felt okay. Okay about it until now but thinking about like I mean it was hard on Pesach and it's gonna be really hard on Rosh Hashanah also I I just want to go back to one thing about singing just a, another thing that I've learned and that I was able to talk to my friend Talia about was um you know for somebody leading services on live stream or without an audience basically um there's this lack of feedback. And so it feels very draining and uncertain. Um, and I think that for singing purposes, if in, 
in spaces where there's enough tech savvy for it, um, even if you can just find a recording of many people singing that song, that tune together at the same time, it's so much better than, you know, everybody muting themselves and see, like there's just the fullness of multiple voices is so much better. Um, and I think that I, I wonder if there's a way that, you know, we could get like a library of, um, of high holiday songs. I know these libraries do exist just so that you can hear the songs in the fullness, um, and have them played in your live stream services. Yeah, I can see the value of that for sure. Mm -hmm. It's, it's going to be strange. It's going to be strange. I mean, I don't know what stage of reopening, uh, Toronto will be at by then we're in stage three of an unknown number of stages right now. So that means <laughs> nothing to me, um, but, um, I, I do think that whatever happens, I am not going to be in shul in the way that I normally am. And so I, like, I appreciate the opportunity to think through some of this with you guys. Same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, is, this has been depressing, but, but I, I appreciate talking about it because I feel like it did, I mean, Zahava gave me a great idea and also I, I think I need to start thinking and making plans now so that I'm not like the week before Rosh Hashanah trying to figure this out. All right, are you all ready to talk about yes, something please. way more fun? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for a second segment, we are talking about Jews on TV, and I specifically said good depictions. Like, I didn't want to talk about, like, all of the times we've seen things and we were like, ugh, why? This is not good. But I wanted to be like, what are some times where you've, like, seen a Jewish person on TV and, in like, a, a Jewish person, per, a person being depicted as Jewish on a TV show and been like, great. Like, that doesn't <laughs> make me feel gross. <laughs> um, and, like, maybe what we, and then maybe we could talk about, like, why we reacted positively to the things that we liked. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go first because I wanted to talk about this because my partner and I have been watching Glow on Netflix, which I was, like, really skeptical. People were saying that it was so good, and I was like, how could it be that good? It's about <laughs> the gorgeous ladies of wrestling in the 80s. Like, what? What would be awesome about that? There's a but in lot fact, of awesome. I was wrong. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and in particular, there is an episode in season two um, in which uh, all of the characters are on a camping trip. And um, they and it happens to be Passover. And one of the characters who's like pretty obnoxious um, is puts on a, a satyr at this on this camping trip and she is like really so two things happened that made me really love it one is that she's competently leading the satyr like she knows the story she like talks everybody through the 10 plagues she does a good um like explanation of what is happening she pronounces the hebrew words in a way that didn't make me like want to crawl out of my skin like it was all very well done and also she is telling the story of like slavery and freedom and really centering her own family's history and the holocaust and there's someone present who uh, who is a vietnamese ref refugee who basically is like you know i actually have a lived experience of like having to flee a dangerous situation for freedom and really kind of like forces the Jewish person to like decenter themselves and actually engage with the fact that like Jewish suffering is not like the only suffering or the most important suffering. And I just like, I could not believe how good it was. Um, I, I loved it so much and it just made me think like, Oh, I don't know that I, 
I cannot remember the last time I saw like a Jewish person on, I, I can't remember the last time I saw like Jewish stuff represented on TV in a way that made me feel this like <laughs> happy that it happened. Um, so anyway, that really that's awesome, where I wanted actually. to start. You should, you should absolutely watch it. The whole series is really good and worth watching. Um, but season two is like incredible. I like that show. I, I haven't watched any of it, so I will definitely check it out. I am not, I don't have anything that I'm watching right now in, a, I feel like in general, um, I, I often have something that I am binging in the background of my life, like, you know, and I don't right now. So I will definitely check it out. So what, what do you, what do you have, Zahava? Okay. So I have a few things in mind, but the main thing I'm going to say will sound like a cheat, but it's not. And I will explain <laughs> why. Okay. So Great. the reason it sounds like a cheat is because it's on Shrew Game, which is an Israeli TV show about Orthodox Jews. So to pick that out as a TV depiction of Jewish ritual probably seems like a loophole. However, the things that I'm picking out are the depictions of the observance of Nida and Mikvah in Sergim, the family purity menstruation ritual immersion laws. And the reason I am picking it out is I think that like having a Mikvah scene on, his, on an Israeli TV show is kind of like having a Passover Seder scene on an American TV show, which is that's a Jewish ritual thing that most people watching will be vaguely aware kind of that it exists, but probably will not have encountered it in any meaningful way. Um, and so the fact that there is like a scene of somebody going to the mikvah on Sergeim is great. And the scene itself is great. So I don't know, spoiler alert for this like decade old show, if you don't want to know anything about what happens to the characters in Sergeim, but um, there is a scene in, I think, season two, where one character named Hodaya, who at the time is religious and dating someone secular, um, is considering having premarital sex and going to the mikveh in order to facilitate doing that within the boundaries of technical Jewish law. So she is somebody who isn't married, has no, like, training in how to do this, because that's something you would only get if you were getting married. And so she shows up uninitiated at the mikvah, can't tell the person there that she doesn't know what she's doing. And the mikvah attendant says, so what's your custom? Oh, gosh. And she has no idea what to say. And she's like, we're Ashkenazi. <laughs> and the woman's like, do you go under the water three times or seven? And she's like, three, three, I do three. Um, and, and there's this moment where like she goes in and what's interesting is you see her, I, I haven't watched this in ages, but you see her feet descending the stairs. You don't actually like see her naked going into the water. Um, and in a way you are in the perspective of a mikvah attendant in that moment where you're like, averting your eyes so the person can have some privacy. And what I love about it is that mikvah is an observance that we don't talk about. And because we don't talk about it, no one's ever told her how to do it. And the same way, like a good presentation of ritual on TV is one that presents it without trying to over explain it to you. That's what's happening here, except that's also happening to the character. And it's a really cool presentation of it. Um, there are other Nisa related, um, things in the show that I really appreciate. So for instance, one of the characters has a chupat Nida, meaning she gets her period the morning of her wedding, which is like super frustrating and annoying in a lot of ways. And so seeing the couple like navigate that, um, and there's also a discussion of halachic infertility on the show, which is a phenomenon where, um, a woman routinely gets her period before, the time when technically she would go to the mikvah and be allowed to have sex again and therefore um, has trouble timing conception. Um, and all of these things are things that I'm like, I can't believe anyone put that on television. Even if, even if it's technically a show about Orthodox Jews, it's like these are not things that Orthodox Jews talk about very much in community. Um, and so that's why it is not cheating to call it out. Mm. 
I don't think it would be cheating, even if it was. Like, you know, there's not that many shows about Jews. So, we're like, the uh, the pool that we have to draw from is is small. Um, Mimi, what about you? Well, I'm going to straight up cheat, because I think I misunderstood the question. <laughs> the prompt. <laughs> I did not limit myself to TV, so one of my favorite depictions of Jewish ritual and custom is not is in a movie, not a TV show. I'll allow it. Will you allow it? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Have you guys ever You're seen? Fired? <laughs> You're fired. Please end. Thank you. <laughs> I'm off this call. Yeah. Um, have you guys ever seen A Serious Man by the Coen Brothers? Mm-hmm. Okay. I Zava. I'll admit to not having been able to get through it. I walked oh, out. It gets at like so much better. In. Okay. Yes, it, I could not get through it my first time, but on rewatching, I was able to. Um, also, if you think about it as the the Book of Job, um, then all of these horrible things happening to this one man just are more bearable. Um, I'll admit that I also have not been able to get through the Book of Job. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, uh, two strikes, okay. <laughs> well, then I will just simply share with you one of the best scenes so that you don't have to watch it yourself. Um, one of the storylines of A Serious Man is that this the 13-year-old son is preparing for his bar mitzvah, and he is very... He is not a diligent student at this at all. He listens to his Torah portion on a um, record. I want to say the, the movie takes place in the 70s, but I don't actually know that. It's just based on the costumes. Yeah, Zahab, that's uh, right. Tamar's nodding. So um, the day of his bar mitzvah comes. There is no evidence leading up to this that this poor child knows what he's doing at all. And he gets stoned before his bar mitzvah. Good choice. So, yes. So... The scene of his bar mitzvah takes place in this, I, it has to be a big conservative suburban shul. Um, the shul is sort of, uh, or the sanctuary is sort of half moon shaped. So everybody's in, um, in, row, in benches that are like curved a little bit and there's an aisle down the middle and the ark is or the bima is like these four carpeted steps and then a big arc in front of windows, which is like 100% the synagogue that I grew up in. Um, it's like every suburban synagogue. In the, the architecture, the design is just so right, so perfect. Um, all of the men are wearing the little skinny, silky talus that's more like a scarf. Um, and the front rows are just filled with old white men in various levels of baldness with like the big silky kippot. And it's just, their faces, it's just perfect. So you see this poor boy stoned, sort of like hazy. You can practically feel his heart palpitations as he walks up to the Torah scroll that's laid out in front of him. Um, and the cantor hands him the yad to read, to use to point um, while he's reading the Torah portion. And the sound of the bar mitzvah boy taking the yad sounds like a sword coming out of its sheath. <laughs> um, and it just, there are all of these moments that are just so perfect. You see him trying to focus on the words of the actual, you know, there is a real Torah scroll unrolled in front of him. He's trying to focus, and then the cantor takes his hand and moves it down about three inches, meaning that he thought he was, re he, he was going to start trying to read something that was not his portion at all. <laughs> um, that also made me so scared for him. And then you, you hear him Oh, sorry, I missed the, the blessing before the reading of Torah. Again, Tamar, like you said, they, they pronounced it all correctly. There was no cringe-worthy Hebrew. The chanting was perfect. And the, uh, just like the old man Ashkenaz conservative accent was perfect. Um, <laughs> so then he finally finds the right place. He's still panicked. And somehow the perfect trope comes out and it's, you know, 
just like it, it's so on they just like they got it um and I don't know I, I I love this part you feel so proud of this little fuck up boy um <laughs> and I just felt so comfortable in this synagogue I was not born in the 70s but I know every every detail felt very um carefully crafted and yeah I just love it fortunately there's a little clip of just that segment on YouTube which I'll include in the show notes if anybody wants to not bear the pain of the whole movie but just see that glorious moment it as I was thinking about this what occurred to me as like the things that were the kind of list that I was making was that it was really like just a testament to the fact that representation matters. Like the things that were on my list were instances where I was like, oh, I am seeing someone like be Jewish in a way that is recognizable and not embarrassing to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that just like makes it, I mean, it is rare and it feels so exciting um, when it happens. And I think that, like, I had never really thought about that. And, like, I do not think that, like, Jewish women need more representation in pop culture. But I do think that it just made me, it, it made me particularly attuned to, like, there are, it's not that uncommon to have Jewish people represented in on TV, but, like, 90% of it I don't feel excited about because it's either Jewish people being like, I'm Jewish, but that just means I love bagels. Um, or people being like, or it's about like Hasidic people. And it's like, well, I don't, those, that doesn't, I don't particularly identify with either of those people. And so I don't find either of those depictions to really be, something that I can get excited about. I, I just said I don't get excited about them, but like that's not true. I still get a little thrill whenever <laughs> I uh, see a Jewish person being referenced as Jewish on TV or a movie. But then it's like when they do it badly, I am very critical of it. And it's just so rare that I feel like I can watch a Jewish person being Jewish on TV and not be picking it apart. Instead, be like, yeah, that seems right. I think that one of the reasons that depictions of Jews on TV can be really painful is that, you know, tomorrow there's the Jews, but it really just means bagels. There's the Hasidic Jew. But I feel like there's this third depiction of the Jew asking deep, earnest questions of a rabbi. Um, I'm thinking in particular of an episode of West Wing where Toby Ziegler um, the death penalty talks, episode yes yep. talks mm -hmm. with his rabbi about the death penalty. For some reason, those conversations always not always but often happen in the synagogue itself, which is like <laughs> or like in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary, itself. yeah. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> the sanctuary, which is not which feels <laughs> weird, a weird place to like have a private conversation. Um, and yeah, there's just this earnestness and um, that that I don't maybe it's because I don't have that sort of relationship with rabbis in my life where I'm like scheduling a meeting with them to talk about a big issue, a big moral issue in my workplace. But I think even if I did, the tone is not quite right in the writing. Um, and yeah, those moments always make me squeamish. You know, I think that one common thread here that we're talking about is that the things that we are pulling at are ones where Jewish rituals are executed well and authentically, and that's what we're looking for. Um, so I just wanted to pull out a contrast, which is, this is a pretty famous thing, so I'm sure many of our, uh, 
listeners will have seen it, but um, the moment in Angels in America, which even though it's a play, I'm going to count it because there was an HBO miniseries. Um, so We're being lenient here, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the moment in Angels in America where um, Lewis, the secular Jew, who's one of the main characters, says Kaddish for Roy Cohn um, next to his hospital bed. So basically, um, you know, Roy Cohn, who's a main character, but also kind of an epitome of evil in, in the play, um, and arguably in real life, depending on your politics, um, is, um, is dying of AIDS, um, though he's told everyone else it's liver cancer, um, in, uh, in a hospital bed and has been horrible to his, um, to his genderqueer nurse, um, whose name is Belize, but they have, but he's dying or has, has just died and Belize doesn't want to just leave a person to die alone. He wants him to have some kind of like a last rites thing, but Roy Cohn is Jewish and Belize is not, and he doesn't know what to do. So he calls Lewis, who is the only person in his social circle, um, who, who is Jewish to say like, come say whatever Jewish death prayer you should say when somebody has just died. And he's like, I'm a terrible Jew. I don't know how to say Kaddish. And then he like stumbles his way through it. He accidentally starts saying Kiddish at one point. Um, <laughs> he's like, he's standing next to the bedside in the film version, in the miniseries version with a tissue on his head, which is a, li a little moment of authenticity <laughs> in the midst of very poorly executed ritual. <laughs> um, and what happens in, in the play is that the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg comes and coaches him through Kaddish, which is a whole other story. However, <laughs> what I like about this is that even though it's not competently executed, it's very poorly executed, but it's a very authentic moment in which the bad yeah. Jew, who knows they're a bad Jew, is saying Kaddish for the bad person. Because human beings are human beings, and no matter what that means, we have some form of responsibility to each other. Um, and that doesn't have to be unambivalent. Like, the Kaddish ends with, Vimru Amain, you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, and um, it occurs to me as I use the, the word unambivalent that actually a really powerful line in the play, if you've seen it, is real love isn't ever ambivalent, which turns out to be a very false claim that Lewis makes to Belize in another scene. Um, and it's like, no, actually, our, our purest and most genuine feelings are ambivalent all the time. And that that's something that can filter through in our Jewish practice also. And it just happens to be a great scene in a lot of ways. Um, but... Uh, shout out to the to the tissue keeper. <laughs> yeah. Mimi, do you have another one? Uh, yeah, this one. I guess I'm just going for the funny. But um, my one of my favorite like pieces of Judaism. This one's actually TV. Is Werewolf Bar Mitzvah from Thirty Rock. Um, <laughs> yes, and I just wanted to like share some of the. The rhymes. I was working late on my Haftorah when I heard a knock on my bedroom door, and I just thought that's so funny. I love the way he says Haftorah. Um, and then there's some rhymes about um, I don't know. I growled and I roared, and my rabbi did as well. It was a rock and werewolf zoo at Temple Beth Emmanuel. <laughs> It just, there's certain like throw-ins that there's the reception happens at the Larchmont Country Club. I don't know, just perfect. Um, it's such a great joke. Again, I just feel like they nailed it. Yeah, I mean that song is so great because it is like clear was clearly written by someone who has written many parody songs for many of bar mitzvah in their time uh -huh. <laughs> uh, a, a time-worn tradition of our people and so it's like it's amazing because like there's an explicit joke but the implicit joke is both boys becoming men <laughs> men becoming wolves but also like that this is a thing that kids do at bar and bat mitzvahs is like write joke songs mm -hmm. so it's it has many 
many, many layers. Tamar, how about you? Do you have another one up your sleeve? The other one that I thought of was um, Rabbi Rachel from Transparent. Um, I, I had really mixed feelings about that show. Like I, I, I liked it in my head, but I always felt kind of gross when I was watching it. Um, and I have not watched the like musical final episode. I just like felt, felt weird about all of the stuff that came out about what the set was like for trans people after, um, Jeffrey Tambor ended up turning out to be kind of a nightmare. Um, but what I loved about the Rabbi Rachel character is it was like a woman rabbi who like cared about Judaism and like lived Judaism in a lot of ways. But also she was like a woman who like wanted to get married and have a child and like wanted to have sex and like wasn't like I think particularly depictions of rabbis tend very heavily toward like old man and also are just like and I I don't think this is just a pop culture thing like I think this is a real idea that people have that like rabbis um really like have all the answers um and I think that like I have a lot of rabbis that I love and admire but I wouldn't say that I think most rabbis that I know have all the answers (laughs) um and I think that's okay like I I don't think that's not a criticism Um, but I, like, I also, I just, I, I really appreciated that it really portrayed her as somebody who, like, found a lot of meaning in Judaism and was very invested in Jewish life, but also, like, was really looking for something and was not, um, was not kind of like a, a sage. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, I loved that. And that is like, I think she was the best thing about that show. But again, it was like when I was thinking about that, I was like, I'm just listing like people who like Jewish women who do Judaism in a way that is familiar to me. (laughs) This is just me being like, I like being represented on TV. (laughs) I mean, I think we'd be remiss if if we didn't shout out that um, our founding producer, David Svi Kalman, um, had a piece in the forward a few years ago back in 2017 um, specifically about Jewish ritual on film and TV. Um, I don't know if you guys recall this because it's been a while, but so it has the misleading title, A Not So Brief History of Every Jewish Ritual Ever Seen on Film or TV, um, which the article does not deliver on, but I think is a list that David Speak himself actually does keep as a running tally <laughs> if you uh, would like to reach out to him personally. But the article was more about um, his personal experience watching TV and and just assuming that he wouldn't be represented and the exceptions to that in the specific moments. But the first one he calls out was also a realization moment for me. Um, and so even though it may be too widely known to be worth mentioning, I just want to mention the Seder on Sports Night. Um, mm-hmm. So Sports Night was Aaron Sorkin's show before The West Wing um, right. and is a much later and, and um, also a really fun show with a lot of great people. Um, but there is a Passover episode in which Joshua Malina, who is a pretty from conservative Jew, um, plays a, a producer named Jeremy who leads a Seder um, for people who are interested on set one night. And the final scene of the episode is him saying Kiddush to start off the Seder. But he says, Baruch Adoshem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. And the thing is, there's no way that would be in any script, right? Right. And it's not even Baruch HaShem, right? Right. It is the most inside baseball of substitutions (laughs) (laughs) to replace God's name with Adoshem Elokeinu. Um, which Joshua Molina has has said um, in a number of interviews that it was just like a thing on the fly that he decided to do, especially because he was going to be taping the scene like 10 times and he didn't want to repeat God's name 10 times. Um, But just that very specific, very in the know, like call out um, that that if you didn't catch it, you were not meant to catch it kind of thing um, was a little was a very like 
you know, this, this media was made for me moment that I very rarely have. Well, but it's interesting because it's like, I don't, he wasn't doing that as a call out to other people, right? Like he was actually doing it because in the moment he personally as a per as a person like not as the character but as himself yeah was like uh as a jew i actually feel weird about saying god's name in vain a lot of times in a row so i'm going For to change it right like he he was actually like performing his own judaism and it was just you seeing it and being like oh yeah i see you doing the same thing that i might do <laughs> um <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. What I was actually seeing was not the character's Judaism, but the actor's Judaism, which is a whole other interesting layer. That's a great point. I want to just call out one other Jew that I think about from TV a lot, which is um, in the first season of Mad Men, Don Draper has um, a thing with a, a woman named, I'm pretty sure she's also named Rachel because all, all Jewish women has to be named Rachel. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, there's a scene where he, they talk about how like she's Jewish and what is it like for her to be a Jewish woman in business and the kind of limitations that she feels, um, as a Jewish woman. And there's also a scene where he goes, um, and pays a shiva call at her house and he knows to bring food. Um, and I just like, I mean, it's interesting because it, that show takes place long before I was born, but it also felt true to me, even though it's like, I mean, has nothing to do with my lived experience, but it felt, it, it was like an unusual representation of a Jewish woman in some ways. Um, and didn't feel like a caricature of itself. Um, and I just feel like that's pretty rare. Um, and I, I think about that episode a lot which like she's she's only in a couple of episodes and then she never comes up again like it's not she's really not a major character but it's a brief thing that really um made a big impression on me yeah she's a fantastic character i haven't thought about that in a while but she's great rachel Mankin, i think nice. wow that's amazing that you got that good call <laughs> <laughs> this was really fun just to like especially as a counterpoint to thinking about the high holidays. Yeah, seriously. I would, I, I feel like we could probably go like three, three more rounds of like interest, at least interesting. Like, I think there's actually like a, a conversation maybe for a, fu a future episode about like what makes a bad portrayal of a Jewish person bad. Um, because I think there are, some consistent problems, but, um, but it's really nice to talk about things that we like and to get reminded about some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Are we ready to talk about our endorsements? Sure. Ready. All right. Uh, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So I'm going to endorse something that, uh, has been up on YouTube since April 29th, 2020, but I stumbled across it yesterday. Um, and I found it just as a suggested video on YouTube. And then I found out that like, Hey, Alma wrote a piece about it. And, um, but so Ben Platt and his two brothers, Jonah Platt and Henry Platt singing Ahavat Olam, a beautiful arrangement of the prayer Ahavat Olam. Uh, the arrangement is by Gabe Mann and Piper Rutman. And so Ben Platt, uh, is the Tony Award-winning um, musical theater actor. He he won the lead actor Tony for Dear Evan Hansen, if that means something to people. Apparently his brother Jonah is also a musical theater actor um, and was in the Broadway company of Wicked at one point. Um, and their younger brother Henry, who's apparently like an undergrad at Penn. Um, but they can all sing really beautifully. Um, and they sing this gorgeous, gorgeous um, harmony version of Ahavat Olam. Um, and they are from a, a pretty um, traditional family. And I think that um, one of their parents is very involved in, um, in the Jewish camp movement, is on the board of the Foundation for Jewish Camp. They all like went to Ramah and they all like clearly have great preparation for this moment. Um, 
And there are other videos of them singing together, but I think this is the only one where they're singing a Hebrew, a Hebrew prayer and it's really beautifully done. So I recommend it and you can add it to your list of uh, digital prayer experiences right now. And I'll share a link in show notes. That sounds really good. Actually, I know it's really good. It does indeed sound really good when you listen to it. <laughs> and they're very sweet. Like yeah. the, the brotherhood comes across. Yeah. They're they look, also it's amazing how much they look alike. Right yes. yes. Yeah. It's really cute. They really look like boys at camp singing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mimi, what do you have to endorse? Well, so speaking of camp, um, I want to endorse... Uh, it's called Jewish Geography Zoom Racing. So this was um, thought up by Micah Hart, who has a podcast called Campfires and Color Wars. And Micah Hart was the camp director's son at my um, Jewish summer camp in Mississippi. Um, so Jewish Geography Zoom Racing is based on an episode of some ESPN show early on in the lockdown Um where the, these various ESPN hosts had the task of just texting as many famous people as they know and trying to get somebody famous to hop on this Zoom call. So you just <laughs> send out a link and see who responds. So Micah's premise is, okay, we're going to get two Jews together who maybe know each other, maybe don't. It's, it's irrelevant. And then Micah chooses another person who he does contact um, to be like the, oh, I'm doing such a poor the job. The Kevin Bacon. It. Yeah, to be the Kevin Bacon. Thank you. And then <laughs> the other two people have to race to see if they can get that person to join a Zoom call. And so the way you do it is you text somebody or multiple people, just text them the link to the Zoom call and say, can you hop on? And once they hop on, you say, do you know Andrea Cohen? If they don't know Andrea Cohen, not allowed to use Facebook at all. You just have to use your Jewish networks. So <laughs> I, I haven't done this. the best job describing it, but I'm going to share a link to one of the early episodes. He's done a ton of these and he's actually raising money for some really great organizations in the, at the same time. Um, it's so much fun. Eventually, you get this Zoom room that's just filled with people being like, I don't know Andrea Cohen. Oh, you said she went to University of Wisconsin. I know somebody. My cousin went to Wisconsin around the same time. So each, each like maybe every five minutes or so, he'll give a hint about age, where this person lives now, college, something like that. Um, it's really amazing to see Jewish geography at work. Um, and one of the reasons that I also really wanted to share this with our listeners is that I think that, you know, it's sort of, he's done a really good job of getting in certain networks, but I am very curious to see him get into different Jewish networks. Um, and yeah, so if people want to like watch one of his shows, then there's also a, um, link to be a participant in Jewish Geography Zoom Racing, and it's just so much fun to watch. Also, if anybody gets on it, please text me. I'm dying to come on Jewish Geography <laughs> Zoom Racing. <laughs> oh my gosh, I cannot wait to watch this. Yeah, this it's, is It's a trip. I'm totally doing this tonight. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to share something extremely silly. Um, which is a song called Bananot by uh, Static and Ben El Tavori. I am I am very glad to have seen that. <laughs> yeah. I am excited to share that with everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It doesn't make any sense at all. It really just is a song about bananas. I mean it's really not about bananas, but the course is about bananas. So what I'm saying is, if you're having a hard day, which who among us isn't in 
2020, <laughs> then you should consider watching this like borderline cringy, but honestly also almost unnervingly joyful video called Bananos. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I have to endorse. That's amazing. Watching it with you two was very gratifying to see your faces. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a thing of beauty to me. Thank you for sharing. This actually makes me wonder whether bananas might have the same idiomatic meaning of like, that's just nuts oh. in Hebrew. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I don't, I don't know. I was thinking bananot and banot, like girls. I think there was a bananote rhyme. I mean, I really enjoyed that there's an explicit um, Lion King call out. So, like, there's something for everyone. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, so I will put a link to that in the show notes so that you can practice singing to your bananote. And also, I have discovered that there are many Zumba routines (laughs) to this song. Um, and in fact, I discovered it because someone I know was in a Zumba class and they started playing this song and it was like not a Jewish setting. And they were like, what's going on? Why am I dancing to a song about bananas? And then they had to like try and find the song after Zumba. It was an amazing thread of people trying to piece together, like, what could this song be? When she was like, all I remember is bananas. And... Uh, also, <laughs> then it turned out that there's just like a lot of Zumba to banana out. So there's a lot. If, if that's your thing, you can Zumba to this. <laughs> that is not my thing. And I still might Zumba to this. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you have a minute, um, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you like us to discuss on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, uh, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and ensure that we're able to bring you new episodes. See you next month. Bye, Mimi. Bye. Bye, Zahava. Bye, guys. Thank <laughs> you.